Welcome to SEL Radio, a podcast where we explore the intersections of history, philosophy, culture, and language while combating ethnocide and cultivating utopia. My name is Luna, and I'm here with Barrett, the founder and philosopher in chief of the Sustainable Culture Lab. Hey, Barrett. Hey, Luna. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to talk with you today. We are in Now, stage three of the American cycle, the previous two were founding and abolition. So, and I don't think we have to go through a preview or an explanation of the American cycle is. If you want that info, you can go back to the previous two episodes. This one, I think, is like the meat of the sandwich. It is like the butter. It is the good stuff. It's the stuff that... We really want to spend a lot of time consuming, thinking about, because to me, this is like the most visionary stage. It's a stage of hope for me. And I kind of want to focus on that after a pretty tumultuous four years, 2020 being one of the worst years I think anyone has ever dealt with. So Barrett, how about you explain what this stage, the third stage of the American cycle reconstruction is? Yeah, no, this one's definitely the meat. This is the one that gives you the hope, but also gives you the clarity to see the the, the dread, put the potential dread on the horizon. Um, <laughs> so, so reconstruction, you know, basically just like if we talk about the cycle, I'll give a quick re- refresh. You know, the founding is is democracy and ethnocide trying to coexist, and you can't coexist democracy and ethnocide you can't and so the second stage is the abolitionist stage where people want to abolish ethnocide and try to have an equitable fair free just um society democratic society and reconstruction is the era where abolition prevails and now we have to come up with the new revolutionary ideas to actually make our democracy equitable and democratic and not an ethnocidal, you know, uh, not using democracy as like a facade for ethnocide. And so in the 1860s, Reconstruction is the era where the abolitionist movement started and it, it, it became the Republican Party. Abraham Lincoln became the president. The election of a Republican president signaled to the rest of America that the abolishing of slavery was on the horizon and the South waged the Civil War. And they lost the Civil War. And once they lost that, the era of Reconstruction began. And so like Lincoln, he ushered in Reconstruction, but he clearly wasn't able to implement it because, you know, John Wilkes Booth assassinated him less than a week after Lincoln met with Robert E. Lee to end the Civil War. Like that's something that a lot of Americans forget about where the Civil War ended, it was peace in America. Lincoln went back to DC, but decided to go to the theater within the same week and he was assassinated. There wasn't like a four month delay or a year, no, a week, not even a month. And so anyways, the era of reconstruction is the 12 year era where America tried to reconstruct the South uh, to make it, you know, as equitable and fair and free as America could conceive at the time. And so there's a lot of hope in Reconstruction, you know, the amount of 
African-Americans that attained elected office. Clearly it was none had happened before, but that era of black political representation wasn't matched for another hundred years. It's, and we rarely talk about, you know, how transformational reconstruction was, you know, there are three amendments to the constitution, all of the Southern states were mandated that they had to make new constitutions, new state constitutions to ensure the enfranchisement of African-Americans. Just think about that. Like all these states had to make new constitutions. And so there's, there's just so much that happened in reconstruction. And so in the American cycle, the second era of reconstruction, I, I consider Barack Obama's presidency because that was another time where you know, we were attempting to abolish, you know, prior to Obama, you could say the continued abolition of Jim Crow, um, the elevation of a black man to the White House is pretty symbolic of that, you know, abolishment and the capacity to start envisioning a new equitable, diverse, multicultural America where everyone is fairly represented and looked after and I think Obama's presidency aspired to do so. A lot of, you know, it didn't accomplish as much as we would have liked, but that's largely due to obstructionism from the Republican Party, not due to a lack of desire or will from Obama. You know, the, the Republicans, in many ways, their obstruction was so unprecedented that it was hard to anticipate the lengths that they would go to prevent Obama from making political appointments or passing legislation or, or or putting Supreme Court justices on the court. So, um, so yeah, so it, I, one significant thing about the today's podcast is we're, we're doing it on inauguration day of Joe Biden. And I think Joe Biden's presidency has the potential to show that we can break the American cycle where the movement that followed reconstruction, which is the era of redemption that worked to undo all the progress of reconstruction and get us back to uh, another founding era, This the second founding era we call Jim Crow. The fact that the Trump attempt at redemption lasted only four years, and now we have a, a new president who his, his agenda and campaign was essentially, I'm best friends with the black president that you love and admire. If you want his vision, his legacy to continue, vote for me. I may not be as good as him, but I'm going to do my best. And that black guy is my best friend. Like that was his whole pitch. So I think it's really, really great that the second attempt at reconstruction may have only had like a, a four-year aberration. And hopefully we can continue reconstruction for longer than the 12 years that the first one had. Yeah, let's kind of talk about Biden's inauguration speech. What did you think about it? Did you feel like there were any reconstructionist themes that kind of arose from it? You know, I think the closest thing to a, a like a direct reconstruction theme was the reference to Abraham Lincoln and the soul of, um, you know, that he's going to put his whole soul into his work and that you need to judge him by that whole body soul commitment to bring people together. I think 
echoing the language of um, of Lincoln was really significant in that because that was the impetus for Reconstruction, essentially. And it, it to a certain extent, and you know, historians squabble over this, but you know, like Lincoln's perspective on race and slavery evolved over time. You know, he seemed by by the end, he seemed to be far more progressive and racially equitable than he was in his younger days. And I think that also is indicative of of the evolution that a lot of white Americans, especially older white Americans still make today where they have to come to grips and accept the need for really ideas that may have been previously considered bold, but when you listen to the voices of people, the communities who have been excluded, they are perceived as not bold anymore. They're just like pragmatic and necessary. And I think there's a, a chance that with a, with Biden, that evolution is going to be pretty evident. And so uh, overall, I thought, you know, one thing that for his speech, and this isn't reconstruction per se, this is more like civil war because he was echoing a lot of the sentiments of Lincoln because with America as divided as it is, you know, Lincoln has a whole lot of speeches and language about preserving the union and keeping the union together and bringing people together and, and, and not supporting division. But in Lincoln's language, like the union that he's talking about was a political union. It wasn't necessarily like a union of the people. It was a political union that these states aren't going to go form another country. Like we need to sustain the that governmental union. I think when Biden spoke about union and unity today, it was more of like a cultural union. I don't think there's much anxiety about these states leaving, <laughs> even though they they always say they're going to secede, and we just kind of chuckle and say. <laughs> Let's see these. Let's see these former Confederate states and these, uh, you know, other ones. How they would survive without the subsidies that come from the tax dollars that come from New York and California. Let's let's see how that works. <laughs> so I think that was really interesting. I think he used the language of of union and unity quite a bit, but it was a more one about cultural unity and not about political uh, unity because. You know, Biden is interested in working with Republicans. He hasn't said that, you know, he's going to take a position of not trying to collaborate with Republicans. But and I think the language in his speech was very much so. Yeah, I'm open, but we have the capacity to just do what we want to do. And, you know, if I can find unity amongst his voters, then he's going to be able to do a lot of what he wants is the, the idea. Clearly the filibuster in the Senate can work to impede everything, but mm-hmm. you know, the Democrats have <laughs> a pretty significant numerical supremacy with the electorate. Um, and if they stay united and continue to vote, then it will be you know more likely that they'll win majority of the house and keep the Senate and keep the White House. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that the first wave of reconstruction, there was like a physical divide, you know, there was like a very physical and political divide in terms of like where people stood on progress. Whereas now, like, I think we're actually starting to really tackle the cultural differences and, and trying to like 
resolve, like, and I think Biden mentioned this, that, you know, that there's been a constant struggle between like the American ideal of how we are all created equally and that there's a harsh, ugly reality of like racism and demoralization that have long tore us apart. So I think that's really interesting. And I think that also really does solidify that we are in the second reconstruction probably. (laughs) Yeah, like if you just look at just the tenor of this inauguration, the amount of people of color, you know, not traditionally American, but you know, it was Garth Brooks was the only one that you're like, that appeals to like an older white American demographic. The other people was J-Lo who gave a shout out to one of her own songs in like the remix that she did. Like when she started speaking Spanish, she like referenced her. I was like, wow, look at that. Um, (laughs) um, There was the poet laureate who was incredible, um, African-American. And you throw in Lady Gaga, who is uh, like the, the LGBTQ community is a big fan of hers. Just the, the prominent voices on display that represented the newer face of America, it's right there. And, you know, like, and then clearly there's Kamala Harris. <laughs> and so you could see that this diversity is representative of a new type of America. I think the thing that makes Americans have a bit of pause is that we like to think that that is how America's been for a long time when that's just couldn't be further from the truth. Like our, our, our ahistorical perspective of our own country makes people imagine that it's been more diverse than it actually has ever been. And, you know, the diversity that we're seeing now is largely due to the policies that Lyndon Johnson made when he did the Great Society, which he did alongside Martin Luther King. And those policies worked to abolish a lot of the racially like white supremacist immigration policies that America had implemented during Jim Crow. And so like the abolishing of these, you know, founding ideas has given people like a false notion of what America has always been. I think we're seeing like the potential for what America could be. The key thing is just making sure that people have like the language to be bold and uh, with what they do because you know language gives you power. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. You mentioned that. Um, I know last time we talked about how these stages of the American cycle kind of bleed into each other. So I can definitely see, you know, like Trump did a lot of damage the last four years. And I saw from Yamisha's um, Twitter that Biden was supposed to sign about 17 executive orders or executive actions today to just basically abolish, repeal a lot of what Trump did. So in this moment, are we kind of attempting abolishment of like what Trump, of Trump's actions? And like, how long do you think that's going to take, especially now that we have it's the trifecta, you know, it's a democratic <laughs> Congress, it's a democratic press. Where do you kind of see reconstruction moving into this? Because I feel like so many of us are still kind of in the, are still just trying to combat what Trump did and come to terms with what he did. I think the key thing is 
reconstruction is it's a proactive era it's not a Mm -hmm. reactive era like abolishing is reactive Mm -hmm. but you know the 13th 14th and 15th amendment those are proactive you know the the voting rights acts that that they created during the 1860s and the 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 laws that they made to outlaw the ku klux klan all that stuff is very proactive those are ideas that that never happened before and so we're definitely going to have to do a lot of work to repair the damage that trump created we're also going to have to do stuff to repair the damage that previous administrations created and you know a lot of democratic presidents tragically a lot of their work is cleaning up the messes that republicans have left like one of the biggest things for barack obama that he had to deal with was a financial crisis that george w bush created and then on top of that was the 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 wars in the middle east the invasion of iraq and afghanistan that has nothing to do with obama's vision you know so biden's definitely going to have stuff to he has to repeal and fix that uh, Donald Trump created. That's there's no ambiguity about that. The key thing is that he comes up with bold ideas that can help reconstruct America. And I think he's to a certain extent already doing some of that. Uh, and I think Obama tried to do a lot of that in his administration. Like the Affordable Care Act is clearly an example of reconstructing America. Um, uh, DACA, that's reconstructing. You could, you could even say the rights to the LGBTQ community, that's reconstructing. And Obama wanted to do even more. Um, you know, Biden already in it, in, uh, stated that he wanted to provide a pathway to citizenship, not just for DACA recipients, but for all undocumented Americans. It was, it's, a, it's an eight year path, like that's reconstructing our society. And so, uh, you know, at SCL, we are, are the policy agenda that we're developing it includes bold ideas. I think DC statehood, that's a that's a something that should be part of reconstruction. I think we should talk about a constitute an amendment to the US Constitution protecting our voting rights. Because right now how our voting rights are structured in the Constitution are that they can't be taken away uh, via you know one way or the or another. But we need to actually have something stating that we all have explicitly have voting rights because now it, it makes it so that the work of lawyers and the government is to proactively protect that right and not instead of reactively preventing people from taking it away and you know so that's and to, a real simple way to think about it is vermont their state constitution already has it in it that you know the voting rights for Vermonters are protected. And in that state, everyone gets to vote except people convicted of voter fraud. So people that all felons get to vote in Vermont and, and the incarcerated. Like if you're in a if you're in a state prison in Vermont, you, you get to vote in all the elections. Doesn't matter. And so it's like there's already a template. So those are the ideas that need to happen to start reconstructing instead of just abolishing the horrible ideas of you know republicans yeah that's a that's an interesting like when you said that reconstruction is proactive and like named you know daca the aca 
I feel like sometimes people think of those as more reactive policies. You know, it's reacting to the state of healthcare as it was before. But I think that's really interesting the way that you framed it about, you know, doing things that have never been done um, in in the U.S. You know, we've never had basically like a, a mandate for healthcare, for health insurance in the U.S. Yeah. We've never had like a a pretty like... I don't want to call it like a pretty clear process, but, you know, we've never really had a process to help undocumented immigrants, like a, like a, a pathway to citizenship. So, yeah, I think that at first yeah. when you said, <laughs> yeah, at first when you said that, that these were proactive, I kind of had to pause there and, and kind of think about, about how and why rather yeah. than thinking of them as reactive. Because, you know, we all react to our environment like that's that's just living one-on-one you know like if it's cold outside I'm gonna react and put a coat on you know Mm -hmm. so if we're viewing being proactive or reactive just based on your environment you won't envision anything as ever being proactive but if it's cold outside and I'm like and I decide what I want to wear that's me proactively doing it. If I'm asking someone what they think I should wear or, <laughs> or having a, you know, like, or, I, or someone's telling me what to do and I'm just following it, like that's gonna be more reactive. And that might not be the best analogy, but clearly if there's a problem that's arisen, there's many politicians in America that just prefer to act as though that problem doesn't exist and, or that those people don't matter. And we'll just think about something else. And they won't proactively try to solve them. There was a very big problem in America regarding the enslavement of people of color. And once the Civil War ended and all these people were emancipated, America had to proactively come up with brand new ideas to give African-Americans the capacity to live as free people in America. So all of those ideas, clearly they were reacting to the new status of Black people in America, but they had to proactively create new solutions. Like that we're talking, the Constitution only had 12 amendments at the time, and they added three more. That's a big deal. That's a lot of amendments. That's really proactive. Like if America was as bold now as then, we would need to add like seven amendments to like add an equal amount. If you just think about how many people uh, were emancipated, that was about 25% of America, like a fourth of the country. For undocumented immigrants, we're talking like 11 million people. DACA is not even a million. If if we proactively extended the franchise to, to an equal number of people in America today, we're, we're talking 60 million people. So like, I think we, America really, since reconstruction was only a 12 year window, which speaks to how committed America has been to keeping ethnocide, we mm-hmm. kind of gloss over it. We don't spend that much time looking at it because all the other eras, the founding era, abolitionist era, redemption era, are way, way longer than Reconstruction. So we just gloss over it. History books don't talk about that much. But it's the era that we all need to know about. And 
I will say the white people, the white Americans of that era, so many of them should just be considered heroes of like our history. And, and not just like the big politicians, but you know, the amount of white people that moved from the North to the South on purpose to go and provide education and start businesses and run for elected office for the benefit of people of color. Like that's wild. That's really, really significant. When the, those people that moved from the North to the South Southerners demonized them and called them carpetbaggers because they carried their belongings in carpet bags, or many of them did. And so now America still views the word, uses the word carpetbagger to describe a, like a good for nothing outsider who's moving into a community to obtain political or, or political power or start a business and doesn't know the locals. And he's like, he's a bad person. And it's like probably the most progressive white people of the 19 of the 1800s we only have a word in america to describe them that's negative that's wild that's just yeah so that's super interesting that is super interesting given how america favors white people regardless and you know there is a negative word or a word with extremely negative connotation to describe the more progressive white folks and i think you mentioned this too like hillary clinton was a carpetbagger right or like she came from a family of so like when i first started thinking about reconstruction in relation to all of this excuse me it was during donald trump's campaign um and like this is just so strange i think it's like it's so (laughs) like on the nose that it's easy to think that like this can't be real, but it's just that on the nose. And that's part, this is why I've been so fascinated with reconstruction. But if you look back at reconstruction, the the political party, the political people that were pushing it, they were the radical Republicans and the radical Republicans, they represented different parts. You know, there's like, you know, one from the North and one from the South and blah, blah, blah. But the demographics of people that comprised this new Republican party were broken up into basically four groups of people. And these four groups of people are still the four groups of people that shaped the Democratic party at the, during, during Barack Obama, which is just so mind blowing. So we look at it and there's clearly African-Americans. It's a big voting block. And the fact that a whole bunch of them could vote now projected a narrative for Republicans of like demographics are king, where the Republicans controlled the North and now they have a very good chance of controlling the South because all these black voters are there. So where Republicans are going to just dominate for a long time, demographics. And so, you know, Democrats today still talk about, you know, the Browning, uh, the diversity of America projects like inevitability of democratic control. And it's just a demographics, you know, same, same, same thing. But then there's the carpetbaggers who move from the North to the South. But then you have the Southerners who sympathize with the North and they're called the scallywags because the Southerners considered them to be traitors of the South. So they were called scallywags. And then you had the progressive like Northern Republicans who were like ideologically Republican, but they didn't go to the South. And so like they're the progressive ones 
but they their progressive was more they would think more about like economics and not necessarily like racial empowerment and you know if you look at how it shapes up today hillary clinton in 2016 was the democratic candidate she was a northerner from chicago went to school in new york her political you know, career was launched in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, then she went to the White House and her husband from Arkansas. And so she's a northerner who forged her political career. And a lot, a lot of her emphasis was forming bonds with the community of color and empowering women in the South. That's a carpetbagger. That's, that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Her husband, Bill Clinton, he's a scalawag. Barack Obama clearly represents the enfranchised African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole wing of progressive Democrats that like are attached to Bernie Sanders who are very progressive, but they're not progressive. And I'm not saying clearly, like it's a very diverse coalition. So this is not gonna be de- intended to be derogatory in any way, but like, you know, the progressiveness that Hillary Clinton had is completely different than the kind that Bernie Sanders had because she's perceived as being more conservative because she was in the environment that was more conservative and oppressive. And so she had to make compromises with those people to try to create racial progress. So in in an environment where they don't understand the harsh realities of the South, she's viewed as being very moderate (laughs) and not progressive. For the people that don't have to interact with these like Southerners, they can be progressive because they don't have to make any sort of compromise with those types of people. And that's how it was back then. (laughs) That's how it is now. And that dynamic helped, made it it so that they uh, struggled to find unity because the carpetbaggers would move to the South and they thought that black people would want carpetbaggers to hold elected office. And black people were like, no, (laughs) like, we want to run for elected office. And they're like, oh, that, that was a surprise. Well, let's figure something out. But that created attention. And carpetbaggers also underestimated the amount of, of pushback they would get from the South. And so it became really easy to make a carpetbagger look like an incompetent politician because they couldn't get any of their policies done because they would get unprecedented obstruction from the South in addition to the terror from the Ku Klux Klan. And so carpetbaggers became you know, labeled as these really incompetent people. Um, And they had tensions with, uh, you know, the the Northern progressives didn't think they were as progressive or as productive as as they they thought they would be. And they thought they would hold more elected offices, but African-Americans are holding all these offices and all this kind of stuff. And the same time, all these scallywags, they, uh, since they were like the poor whites in the South, by and large, they, a lot of them wouldn't, didn't consider themselves as racist as other people in the South. They were definitely racist, but you know, they're focused more on their economic interests. They just wanted to not be poor. And and union Republicans needed scalawags to help win Southern states. And so that's why when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, his vice president became the president, and that was Andrew Johnson, who was from the South. And Andrew Johnson was a very big opponent of, of Reconstruction. And he, was, he believed that uh, 
if blacks got voting rights and equality, that they would side with the, the, the plantation owners and the South would have a new dynamic called a slaveocracy that would make the poor whites the new bottom and that the blacks and the landowners would unite to run the South. And so he was against empowering black people because he thought it was gonna make whites poorer. <laughs> That's a real idea. And so, so yeah, so that I think the parallels between the present or like Obama's, like the political dynamics of Obama that are still showing in Biden are, are pretty evident on the democratic side, but mm -hmm. alarmingly they're even more apparent on the Republican side. The Republicans back then uh, were the Democrats. And what happened when they lost the war is they kind of made these de facto unofficial political groups, just like when Obama won next, you know, like the Tea Party shows up and the birthers show up, all these groups that are Republican but aren't Republican. And, you know, are they a real group? Yes, no, I don't know. Um, back then, they made this movement called the Redeemers. And it was just Republicans who, Democrats who wanted to redeem the South. And by redeem, they meant make it back to how it was uh, before the Civil War. So like Donald Trump's campaign slogan of make America great again is the exact same idea of the campaign of the Redeemers. And the Redeemers also, at this time, these former Confederates then started making these white supremacist militias like the Ku Klux Klan and you know the red shirts and the white knights of the camellia and all these different mm -hmm. entities popped up. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Democrats and the Redeemers and, and, and these white militia terrorist groups, like officially but unofficially worked together. You know, like they couldn't openly because. Ulysses Grant was making it illegal for these groups to organize because they were just terrorizing everybody. So you couldn't be that open about your affiliation with these groups. But, you know, the a Redeemer candidate would be very in support of the Ku Klux Klan going out and terrorizing his political opponents or preventing African-Americans from voting and doing all of that stuff because it would help them win elections. And so you just look at Donald Trump with his Make America Great Again slogan, which is the same idea as the Redeemer's narrative. And he, he supported, unofficially supported all of these white supremacist groups, the Ku Klux Klan and the Proud Boys and all these groups felt emboldened by Donald Trump to go around terrorizing people in America. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same dynamic it's the same script and so the political dynamics of the 1860s for the progressives the liberals are the same as today and the dynamics for the conservatives uh the regressives <laughs> are the same back then as they are today and i think that shows even more why it's so important to know about reconstruction because if you are a American who's not racist and cares about racial equality, you should want reconstruction to continue for as long as humanly possible. And it's hard to want that to happen if you don't know anything about reconstruction. Yeah, super important to know about this. 
It is an incredibly hot take, I feel like, for you to say that Obama is the second reconstruction stage. I feel like a lot of people would point to the civil rights movement of the 60s and say that that's reconstruction. Maybe we talked about this last time, too. But we talked about it a little bit, but I can talk about it again. But like, yeah, <laughs> they're all hot takes. You know, like, <laughs> like, I will say the term hot takes are like, it's so funny because as a as a person with ideas or opinions in the, the world in which we live in, they expect you to have an idea like every 20 seconds, like every every day you got to have a new genius idea. And what happens like nobody can do that. So now you have to have like mediocre ideas that you can package to sound like they're really good. And since we know they're not that great, they're just hot takes. Because <laughs> tomorrow that, you know, tomorrow that takes and be cold and we need to have another hot one. And it's like, so anyways, this language we have in many ways just trivializes good ideas or like a good idea is going to be called a hot take, not because we're trying to trivialize it. We just only have trivial language to describe important things, (laughs) which is just so disturbing. But anyways, my hot take for uh, Barack Obama and Reconstruction is I don't, I, I think it's just really obvious. I, I think the civil rights era, and this is not to downplay the civil rights era in any way, like the abolitionist movement in the 1800s that led to the civil war is incredibly important. Like, you know, we, like, we talk about Harriet Tubman all the time, not because she was the leader during reconstruction, you know, <laughs> like she did some incredible stuff to abolish enslavement at a very hands-on grassroots level, you know? That's really, really significant. Mm -hmm. The point of the civil rights era was to abolish Jim Crow. That's what it was. Jim Crow was created to give, to take away the rights that black people had earned in reconstruction. And the civil rights era, in addition to the great migration, were endeavors that the black community took at times with support of people outside the African-American community to abolish Jim Crow. That's really important. That's really, really great. But mm-hmm. I don't think we should conflate the abolishing of something as the process of like transcending and creating something new. Clearly right. like abolition like proceeds and goes to it, but we don't need to, if, if, if to accomplish something requires 10 steps, yeah, we're all going to be really, really happy at step 10. And if we're lazy, we're going to talk about step 10 as being the absolute best, most important step, and this is the best one. But one through nine are just as important. Like you can't get to 10 without the ones that preceded it. And I think when people try to have hot takes or whatever, it's things sound better when you articulate everything as if each one's the pinnacle. And no, that's just not how anything works ever. And so the civil rights movement was there to abolish uh, Jim Crow. The abolitionist movement was about abolishing slavery. And so they worked to abolish slavery and they did it. Like the Emancipation Proclamation was in 1863. Reconstruction didn't start till 1865. 
Like some historians move it to 1863 and say the, the, the Emancipation Proclamation is the beginning of it, but politically and policy-wise, it was 1865. And so that's just how it works. Like you have to have the thing to proceed, you know, you have to abolish the bad to start having even a foundation mm -hmm. to make something transformational and new. And I think, I think that's what, what it was. And, you know, like the amount of African-Americans that you could talk to that lived through Jim Crow that would vocally say that they couldn't have imagined a Black person being president, not because we weren't capable of being it, but they were confident that white people would find a way to ensure that that never happened. If that's the perspective that you have, you're still in the stage of abolishing. Hmm. Now, now we have people that like, there's a 12 year old kid that lives in my house now. He's like, he's my, my partner's nephew. So he's like my nephew. This kid doesn't even know, like, oh, like he, ex he was born when Obama was, was elected. His life was eight years of a black guy running the country and the only time that he's seen a white person run America, it's been a total nightmare. And he's yeah. just like, I, objectively speaking, he's like, I don't know if white people are even good at this. Like, mm -hmm. I knew there's a bunch of white ones before Barack Obama, but I wasn't alive then. So I can't say how good or bad they were. But what I can say is now I have a hard time imagining a white guy running the white, running America and being really confident that that's going to be good. Like, he likes Joe Biden, but he really likes Joe Biden because Joe Biden has Kamala Harris and Joe Biden's good friends with black people or Barack Obama. He's like, this guy is color, you know, person of color approved. So I got more faith in him than I do about the other white guy that was before him. And that's just a perfectly logical way for this kid to see the world. Just yeah. makes sense. Yeah. That's a perspective that you can have when you've abolished something. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a very reactive uh, type of reaction, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And so this kid now has, an, has a perspective on how America can work and what it can be that was unimaginable prior to Barack Obama being president. Like, when George W. was president, someone just said, I can't even imagine what it'd be like having a white guy running the country. Like we just need to just make sure we keep on having people of color in charge. Agreed. So yeah, like the, the, the stated goal of the civil rights era in many ways was just abolishing Jim Crow, which is fantastic. And it needed to, needed to get abolished. And in our previous episode, we talked about how hard it is to abolish Jim Crow because so much of Jim Crow was racist policies without racist language that was yeah. that was done to take away so many facets of black existence where you couldn't have just like one sweeping thing where like all right i'm abolishing slavery and instead of black people not being humans they're humans boom done you know like you could you could have that narrative back then for jim yeah. crow it's different you have to systematically abolish so many facets of American life 
that many people don't even perceive as being racist because there's no racist language in it, but the outcomes have intentionally been to create racial division and to sustain it. It's complicated. You know, transcending that and reconstructing America, I don't think you can get any bigger than a black person being president. Really? And yeah, I said, I'll, I'll take it back. Bigger would be a Native American being president. Okay. If we if, if we had if we had an indigenous person be president of the United States, that would be bigger than an African American being president. And it'd be great for one day in the future for someone to say, I just I'm not sure if people that aren't indigenous and have like a, a really great connection to the land and understand America, I'm I wonder how good they can be. Like that'd be that'd be incredible like if there's a greater expectation for me as an african-american for other african-americans to like appreciate the land that is america as if we've lived here as a people for thousands of years yeah like i'd love to be a, i'd love for a cultural expectation where i have that responsibility that'd be fantastic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah just, that kind of uh, leads me to my last question then what kind of reconstructionist policies is SEL hoping to push for? You don't have to say all of them or any of them. You kind of mentioned two, DC statehood, and um, there is another one that you had mentioned. So do you want to kind of talk about like kind of the policy agenda? And you don't have to if it's top secret or if it's going to get rolled out in a bigger way, but. So like, it's not top secret, but like the, <laughs> the, the thing is, is we're in the, the early stage of developing and formulating our policy and our proposals or whatnot. The key thing is I feel the language of reconstruction makes it easier for people to articulate the ability to do things that they previously thought would be too radical or unprecedented. Because you'll mm -hmm. see that there's this era in America that was only 12 years, that there's a pretty obvious precedent that this is, that we're capable of doing this and that not only we're capable of doing it, that we need to do it because it promotes racial equality. And this is the era where America really committed itself to, to be as equitable as it could imagine at the time. And we have to use that language. And so voting rights, uh, a constitutional amendment extending uh, regarding voting rights modeled off of Vermont, I think that's a perfect thing to pursue that would expand the franchise to all felons and everyone that's incarcerated. Like, I don't care if you are on death row, you get to vote in everything. You are not a disposable person who we don't care about. Like you still can have a say in your government because these people that are incarcerated, they still have families. They still have people that the government's impacting and they need to have a say and helping to influence their lives. Like when I vote as a citizen who's not in jail, like I'm not just voting for stuff that matters to me. Like I vote for stuff that matters to my friends and my family and whether, and people in jail have friends and family, they should be able to vote to help the, those lives, those people's lives get better. I think that is an idea that can reconstruct America. Biden already agrees that we should create a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented people, 
not just DACA. I'm all about that. I think DC statehood is essential. We are the first people in America to get, first African-Americans in America to get the franchise and we still haven't gotten congressional representation. That doesn't make any sense. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's due to DC being minority African-American since forever. Um, this isn't directly reconstruction, but that great book that we, we sh you shared with me about the filibuster, it's very obvious that the filibuster has been a tool to implement, to, to prevent policies that promote racial equality, dating back to abolition, reconstruction, Jim Crow, and Obama's presidency, which we consider the second reconstruction. And so there's a lot. And I don't want, I just think the key thing is if you start viewing things with reconstruction, you can see that there's way, there's far more possibilities than you imagine. Like also another thing, the current size of the Supreme Court is based on the decisions they made in reconstruction. Like there, there was the, it's, it's kind of confusing because people think that, some people say that the court was expanded during reconstruction and it was, and it wasn't. Uh, it was expanded prior to reconstruction on the, with the plan to take away, I believe two seats during reconstruction. But then they said, nah, we're just gonna keep it at this size. And that's the size that the Supreme Court's been ever since. So all these originalist, like constitutional guys and that are the Federal Society, like the founder's idea of the Supreme Court had way fewer seats. Like they're in a Supreme Court that looks the way it does because this is how America decided it should look once black people had the vote, <laughs> you know? So the idea of adding a couple more seats to the Supreme Court to make up for the obstructionist anti-democratic policies that came about in the previous administration that was an era of redemption makes sense. And this is the era that has decided the shape of the court, decided again all about it. And so there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of policies that could come out of it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Barrett. This was the third stage of the American cycle, Reconstruction. And if folks are interested in checking out the first stage founding or the second stage abolition, please check out the two previous episodes. Barrett, do you have anything to add on Reconstruction? Any, any last words for this episode, at least? You know, I can talk about reconstruction for a long time. I will, I'll say <laughs> this is a weird example and I, I, I might mess up the, the person's name, but one of the radical Republicans, he never got married. And there was a rumor in the 1860s that he was kind of like married to this light-skinned black woman who was like his housekeeper. And if you watch the movie Lincoln, at the end, the character that Tommy Lee Jones is, uh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Lincoln, Tommy Lee Jones goes to bed and he's in bed with a black woman. And that's like his lady, but it was secret. They lived in DC, she was his housekeeper. And, you know, they couldn't get married. 
and we we there's not a lot of documentation about like what their relationship was but when he died he left her like the house and everything like that and it's like man this there's this era in the 1860s where there was this white guy and this black woman and potentially like I, I i'm just speculating here because there's not a, a bunch of documented love letters between the two of them or anything but like there's this there was like an interracial couple in the 1860s and the white guy was the politician and was shaping policy for america and you wake up today and we're in another stage of reconstruction and we look and there's kamala harris who went to howard and there's no no one's questioning like her african-american bona fides <laughs> like that's not a not mm -hmm. a question mm -hmm. um and the, the congressman that they, they speculate, his name was Thaddeus Stevens. He was from Pennsylvania. He was a, a House of Representative. And they also say that his, uh, they speculate that the rumors of his of relationship with this Black woman undermine his political aspirations and everything. So now we, we, we wake up and now we're in this new era. And there's another interracial couple. And this one, the wife is a vice president. And the husband's this white guy who's super supportive and successful in his own right. And you're like, man, like, look at that. Like, what a fascinating dynamic. But I don't know, there's like, there's all these little stories about the era that if you check it out, you will see that there's you know, all these like interracial couples and all sorts of progressive stuff that you didn't think Americans were capable or interested of doing in, in doing or or whatnot. And uh, you see stuff today and you know, like Barack Obama, his mom was white. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and it's just, I don't know, you can just see like a lot of potential to make something new. And you can see that back in 1860s, they made a lot of new things. And there was even more potential, but America just wasn't capable of doing it. And the hope now is that we're more capable of doing it now than we were 150 years ago, but we need to learn the lessons from that era to make the adequate progress in this one. This just makes me feel like we should do eventually down the road a part two. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll revisit this in a month or two into the Biden administration to see where we are then. Because the hope is that the Biden administration is showing that we are breaking the cycle. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers and crossed. <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah. percent. All, all right. right. Well, thank you all. Everyone can follow us on all social media platforms at scl.community. And don't forget to subscribe to SCL's newsletter, The Word, for a weekly dose of something liberating at the top of your week. I think that's it for, yeah. for now. And we'll yeah. be back next time for redemption, which is the most heinous part of this cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the worst. Oh, it's so bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, all right. <laughs> and see, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>